welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rosher, Global Head of Reed Smith's international arbitration practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our latest edition of the Arbitral Insights podcast series. And I'm delighted today to have as our guest Chirag Karia QC. Hello, Chirag. Hello, Gautam. How are you? I'm very good. Great to have you here. I'm delighted. I'm, it's a real honor to be speaking to you today. For those of you who haven't yet met or know Chirag, I'm going to give you a little background on him. He's truly exceptional. He is a very highly regarded QC here in London. He is a member of Quadrant Chambers in London. His core practice areas encompass commercial law, shipping, commodities, energy, and arbitration. He is well-known and and extremely well-recognized for his incisive cross-examination skills. So I'm delighted that I'm actually going to be on the other side of the fence today and I'm going to be cross-examining you, Chirag. But Chirag also has a very interesting background. Before he became a barrister, he spent 10 years practicing in California, where he still is licensed. And I'm sure we'll talk about that, Chirag, in the course of this discussion. One of the other reasons why I'm delighted to be speaking to Chirag today is that he is one of only a few ethnically diverse senior Queen's Counsel at the English Bar. And it's wonderful to see you doing so well, Chirag. So again, a very warm welcome, Chirag, and I look forward to our discussion today. Thank you so much, Gautam, and it was a very kind introduction. Well, it's all um, appropriate and all correct, which is, you know, one of the things I learned as a very young lawyer, Chirag, which I, I can't resist telling you, is someone told me, you know, saying things is easy when you speak the truth. Yes. So saying what I said was very simple. (laughs) Um, So so let's wind it back, Chirag. You've had a a very interesting career, and we'll talk about that. And there's obviously a lot more to come from you. But tell us about how it all started. How did you first get interested in in a career in the law? So if you could just tell us a little bit about that. I came to law in a very indirect way. During my youth, I was fascinated by science. So I was always going to be a physicist. And I recall my father, when I must have been about 11, 12, saying, you know, Chirag, you should be an advocate. And I said, no, never. You know, I'm going to be a scientist. I'm going to discover something. And in fact, I went to, I went to Cambridge to do natural sciences. I, my my career was planned out and I wanted to be a physicist. And during my year off, I actually worked for a company called the National Nuclear Corporation, who were doing the safety case for the Sizewell B nuclear reactor. And I think that year off, away from the treadmill of school, you know, GC, what is now GCSEs, O-levels, A-levels, etc., just sort of gave me a bit of perspective. And I started to look at, you know, what it is I really wanted to do and could see myself doing for the rest of my life. And I actually, you know, went and talked to some consultant doctors, because as you know, or maybe you don't, but certainly in my day and age, if you're a scientist and you're Indian, you became a doctor. I know, I know all too well, Chirag. I know all too well. (laughs) And and I I realised that this is not what I wanted to do. It's not what I was cut out to do. 
But I actually spent some time with a, a local set of criminal uh, barristers in Leicester, where I lived, and I spent some time with them. And I just, it just absolutely blew me away. So I decided to change to law. I did law, qualified at the bar, briefly became a tenant, and then went to, I got a scholarship to study at Berkeley in the United States. I went to the law school there and did an LLM. And if you've ever been to the San Francisco Bay Area, you will know that it is extremely seductive. And, it is. Uh, having gone there for one year, I ended up staying there for 10. As I worked as a litigator, primarily federal court, but also state court litigation. And also I did, uh, in the last couple of years, some corporate law um, in, the, in Silicon Valley, uh, all at the height of the dot-com boom. So I've sort of... Uh, been around and uh, obviously I've, I've been back since 2000 in in London asking as a commercial barrister. So that's a potted history. No, fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And uh, I mean, one thing also, since you, you mentioned sort of the stereotype that people from from the same heritage that you and I share often have is that you're often sort of seen as either a scientist uh, of some kind or you go into accountancy. Yes. And I think law is one of those things that's often overlooked. So I yes. think you, I mean, you and I have fallen into that middle ground where no one, you know, where no one was looking. That's and right. They were expecting us to pick it, to, to be going on the other flanks. But uh, yeah. But no. But that's really interesting. I mean, in terms of uh, your background and, and 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 you know, when you were studying and then working in California, and you look at how legal practice is here, where you've spent the majority of, of your legal career, how would you, I mean, what would be the main differentiators between your practice in California and practice here? The main, the main reason we came back to England uh, from California wasn't the weather, as you would imagine. <laughs> it was because I wanted to come back to the bar. I, I am a firm believer in the divided profession. I think it is by far the most efficient. And I know that that is an extremely difficult thing to explain to foreign lawyers. But having practiced in both systems, it is much more efficient. I get to do what I am best at and also what I enjoy the most. So I'm either doing advocacy. And as you know, in our type of work, that's you know not a very large percentage, can be you know, 15, 20, 30% of the time, if you're lucky. But the other time is advising, but or giving considerable thought to some knotty legal issues, or some strategic issues, whilst I'm unburdened by dealing with disclosure and, and dealing with the client and all of that stuff, which I used to do as a, as a litigator in a in a firm in the US, which meant that there was only me who was handling both the client and the disclosure and preparing for the trial. And I think that's inherently very difficult to do. The other thing is the big advantage is you end up specializing, not by subject matter, but by skill. So I do a lot more advocacy as a barrister than I would have done, that I did as a litigator. Because, you know, most cases settle, you have what they call in the US motion practice and you have, uh, but most of that's done on paper in any event. So the specialization really assists the system because it means 
that it's something that I do day in, day out. And therefore, hopefully, I'm a lot more adept at it than if you're just doing it, you know, once a year or twice a year. So that's where I think this, our system has great benefits. It also has, of course, the fact that certainly in the courts, and this happens in arbitration as well, if there are the same or similar, a group of advocates and a group of arbitrators or, or judges who trust each other, it allows things to move much smoother and they trust each other because they know each other that, for no other reason than that. And I think that that helps considerably. And ultimately, I think, you know, one has to look at what the market is saying. And I think London, uh, despite, you know, competition from places like Singapore and elsewhere, is still doing, doing very well. And there's a reason why people come here. And I hope and I sincerely believe it's because of the quality of the service providers, you know, law firms like Reed Smith, The Bar, and all the other experts and all the other uh, support mm -hmm. that London provides. Yeah, no, I agree. I, you know, I often, you know, tell young lawyers uh, who I talk to that English law is probably one of our country's greatest exports uh, because, yeah. uh, because frankly, I mean, you know, as you said, you know, parties can have no affiliation or link to this country, but they will litigate or arbitrate here. So, you know, just tell us, because you know, one of the things I always find very interesting when I speak to distinguished people like yourself, Chirag, is, you know, when you were junior and when you were coming up the ranks, you know, both in the US and here, who mentored you and who inspired you to do well and to achieve your potential? I wonder if you could just share with us some of your experiences uh, of those who mentored and inspired you and indeed who continue to mentor and inspire you. Well, I, it sort of the, the first one actually goes back to my university days. And uh, there was a wonderful man called Mickey Dias. And, uh, you know, people might remember he, he was a... He wrote a textbook. Yes, yes. yes. He, yes. Did, he did a textbook on tort. He also, at, at the time, was the editor of Clark and Linzel. I studied uh, both tort and Roman law, which is one of the things you had to do at Cambridge with him. And uh, he... Once you've met him, he was an amazing, amazing individual, a man of great learning who approached the law with passion and precision. So we used to we used to go into his room and it was a, uh, it was almost like a holy, you know, it's a temple and we'd sit there and he'd have his <laughs> gown on and he will. Yeah. And, and he had this wonderful accent. He was Sri Lankan uh, and uh, and he would, you know, uh, talk about the difference between uh, liability and suability and and sort of we learned the precision and also the love that you can have of the law and, and, and the logic and then also trying to think outside the logic as to why judges were doing or deciding what they were deciding. So he was my my first mentor. When I went to Berkeley, there was a professor there called Willie Fletcher, who actually, I think he's retired now, but he, he became a judge of the Federal Ninth Circuit. And I studied federal courts with him. He was, again, a, a great teacher to learn from. When I was at Bacon McKenzie, there were a couple of uh, partners that I worked with. 
and who nurtured me and who to whom I'm always very grateful. My pupil master actually was Sir Julian Flo, now the Chancellor of the High Court. Yes. And I was his pupil when he was a very busy junior, just to see him juggling everything. And what I saw my job as, and one of the reasons I suppose I got taken on, is to sort of try to help him whenever I could, you know, say, okay, let me deal with that point. Can I, you know, let me write you a note. But but it, it certainly showed me, you know, how you can juggle workload and also be honest to yourself and honest to your clients, right? Saying, look, I'm, you know, and this is something I don't know if you find, but one has to explain to clients, uh, especially people from abroad, that just because I'm giving you negative advice in conference doesn't mean I'm not going to be arguing your case. I'll be arguing your case to the very best of my ability, but it's, I wear two hats. I'm an advocate, I'm an advisor. And when I'm an advisor, I'll tell you what I think is going to happen because I wouldn't be serving you well if I suddenly looked at the world with rose-tinted spectacles and said everything's going to be fine when, you know, in my heart and my intellect tells me that we have these difficulties. But don't be afraid. You know, I'm not, you know, none of that's going to come out when I, I'm, you know, making my submissions. So I mean, th- those are the people I mm. I would point out. So it's a very impressive list, and uh, yeah. you know, and and look, and I'm the same. You know, there are many people who've inspired me, but one thing you just said there, which is very interesting, is how to convey things uh, in a candidly yeah. to clients, but also fight hard for them. And I yes. think that's one of the great things that I know senior counsel like yourself do so well because. We do have an adversarial system. Uh, It's there to argue the points out. And, you know, certainly a point that or a case that may not always have a great prospect, you know, can come good because of the legal points. And that may be something that clients don't always see. So, um, you know, just, you know, in terms of, you know, your practice, which is very diverse, because as I mentioned in in opening, shipping, commodities, energy, commercial law, international arbitration. Are there any cases that stand out to you that you've done on the law? So, you know, on points of law that have been particularly interesting and that you look back on and think, wow, those were really, really significant legal points that I argued. Yes, I suppose there are two cases that, that I would say fall within that. The first one is uh, the case we call the use of sepinoglus, all about anti-suit injunctions. And this was a case where I was acting for a P&I club who had insured a vessel that had grounded and the cargo was lost. And the charterer sued the owner in London arbitration, because there was a London arbitration. But then, because the charterer was based in Turkey, and the vessel was undertaking a liner operation from Turkey, it also sued the PNI Club under Turkey's right of direct action statute within the Turkish courts. And we applied urgently for an anti-suit injunction against this, the charterers, on the basis that, first of all, they were in breach of contract, because although there was no direct contract between us and them, 
they were seeking to take the benefit of the insurance contract and therefore had to do so in accordance with the terms of that contract, which required arbitration in London. And on the second basis, vexatious and oppressive. Now, the, the, the difficult thing on the first ground was that there, was, there were conflicting court of appeal decisions, the first one not having been cited in the second case. So in the first instance, that, that proved to be a hurdle, but we succeeded. Uh, I managed to persuade the judge on the vexatious and oppressive basis. And then the matter went to the Court of Appeal, and the Court of Appeal agreed with me that the second decision was wrong and ought not to be followed, because just logically it didn't make sense. So that the, the principle has been established that if you seek to take the benefit of a contract as a third party, then you are bound to do so by reference to the dispute resolution clauses in that contract. The other one was the DC Western, which was a marine insurance case. And, uh, and that raised a, a lot of very interesting issues about what a peril is in insurance uh, and whether, you know, what, what it means to have a fortuity because there was a lot of argument that the vessel was defective in a certain way upon sailing, and therefore it was certain that the vessel would experience ingress of water as she sailed. We argued that that was nevertheless a fortuity. There is some very interesting discussion in the judgment of Mr. Justice Popperwell in that case as to what is the meaning of a fortuity. So I'd, I'd say, you know, those two, as far as sort of personally affecting, there is an arbitration I did. It was technically a sort of, it was a management agreement, a ship management agreement, but really it was almost a quasi-family dispute within a, a very prominent Greek shipping family where somebody who had been running their operations from London was effectively cut out and left out to dry because he had had some heart problems and wanted to work from home. This is several years ago, and he was just summarily just cut out. Uh, it wasn't an employment issue, it was actually a contractual issue. And that was a case where my solicitors were doing it on a no-win, no-fee basis, and it really affected the individual, which we get very rarely in our, ca- in our cases. You know, it isn't an individual who's affected. It's, uh, it's a big company or generally big insurers. And that was quite heartening. So I, I got to sense what people who practice in other areas get to feel. So I think that those are the cases mm. I would highlight. Fantastic. No, no, great. I don't know. I mean, I couldn't resist asking you that because I know that you've got a great love of the law and also the areas of your practice are very law intensive. I mean, one of the yes. things I, that I remember, even as a law student, is most of the law of contract and a lot of the law of tort is based on shipping law. Yes. And uh, there are lots of legal points that come out of it. I mean, I, I mean, I still have nightmares about the Swiss Atlantique, for example. But anyway, we, we won't get into all of that now. But um, I mean, tell us a little bit about, I mean, we've been talking about arbitration and you know, I mean, that's a big part of your practice as well. I've got a couple of things to ask you, really. I mean, on that. Arbitration is clearly a very popular mechanism for a dispute resolution these days, but it's not perfect. There are a number of things that can definitely be improved as part of the process, including the old chestnut about how long it takes to get the award. 
once yeah. you've actually finished the case. But from your perspective as someone who is both counsel and an arbitrator, are there things that we can do as an arbitration community to improve arbitration? I, I would say two things come immediately to mind. Uh, the first one is page limits. International arbitration, I find, is, is drowning in paper, and that may that may well also be affecting the period it takes for the award to come out. I mean, it's not the only thing because people are taking on too many appointments or whatever. But trying to encourage brevity would be extremely helpful, it seems to me, because after a while, you know, people get lost in paper and you're just answering paper. But at the end of the day, the arbitrators or arbitrators have to sit back and absorb all of this. And saying the same thing five different ways is not really, I find, helpful. If you say it once, then I think that should be enough. And allied with that is, and again, you can see that I'm coming at this from an English advocate's point of view, is maybe a little bit more interactive advocacy, which I know particularly those from the civil law system find a, a, probably a bit too intrusive. But, you know, just asking questions and just and indicating where the tribunal needs assistance. I mean, as an advocate, as you well know, both, you know, certain arbitrators are quite helpful in that way. Others aren't. And similarly with judges, some judges are over-interventionist, in, in, although these days you don't get that. But some will just listen. And actually, those are the ones I find the most difficult because, you know, we really want, I'd rather have a judge or an arbitrator. So, well, Mr. Kari, you say this, but, you know, I'm having difficulty understanding how this works or what, you know, is this correct? Now, it does put the advocate on the spot and, you know, the arbitrator has to sometimes, and same with the judge, you know, if the judge spots that the advocate has nothing, no answer to give, then just let it let it pass because we've all been there where you know a particular question is asked and you, you try to answer it but there is no answer but otherwise you know often there is well yes the answer to that is look at this piece of evidence and it's better to have that clarified in the arbitrator's mind during oral advocacy as opposed to the ad- arbitrators then delving through all the papers, trying to find that answer, and sometimes not finding it. So, so those yeah. are the two things I would, I would suggest. No, and I agree with you. I think those are two really important things. And I, mean, I wholeheartedly agree with you, Chirag. And you and I didn't even go through these questions in advance. This is very much yeah. just you know, us having a chat. But I, I, could, I couldn't agree with you more about page limits. I think page limits are so important because otherwise we have what I call arbitigation. Yeah which is just a hybrid of arbitration and litigation. And, you know, as you and I will remember, when Lord Wolfe brought in the Wolfe reforms, one of the things he wanted to get rid of was the war of attrition, which yes. litigators were, were constantly getting into. And I do feel we, we, we need sort of page limits. And also, I couldn't give you more about the whole thing about arbitrators being more discursive. Because yes. as you say, some of them will chat but some of them will just sit back and listen and take notes quietly and not ask questions. And I think, you know, so I know I fully agree with you on, on those points. And, you know, um, you know, would, you know, do you find, you know, when you sit as an arbitrator, do you find 
the process of writing an award something and this is going to sound strange do you enjoy writing awards or do you find or do you find them you know because you know you're used to arguing one side of the case and then your opponent argues the other side of the case you know what's it like for you when you're writing an award and you're thinking about both sides submissions and you know how do you ultimately whittle it down yes well you know i actually find it so relieving that i'm not as an advocate, you're always uh, you're looking at the other side's arguments, and even before you read the other side's submissions, there's a bit of trepidation. Even though you've done the case, there's a bit of trepidation because you don't know what you're going to see, and you don't know whether you're going to find an answer to it. So, you know, it's, it's very challenging, and I love that adrenaline, but it's there. As an arbitrator, the adrenaline's slightly different. It's, I need to get the right answer. I need to be fair, but I'm not, you know, on my mettle to make sure, you know, I spot every point and I can answer it and I can think of an answer. I have the party submissions and what I really need to do is to think through is to say, well, what is the right answer? And so to that extent, it's, it is to a certain extent, a bit like writing opinions and advices, which is, you know, you do and, 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 and I do as well. Except it's, you know, this is one where your decision is going to be determinative. And that, of course, places an additional uh, responsibility. But certainly I find it less stressful than being an advocate. But that's not to say I love the stress that as an advocate. I mean, I think, <laughs> you know, I, I'm an adrenaline junkie like that. So, you know, I, I, I yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Adrenaline junkie, Mr. Carrier. I love it. Yeah. I love it. You know, let me ask you, we're, we're sort of, we're coming towards sort of the sort of the end of the discussion, but I've got two other areas to cover with you. One of them is a, is an important area to you and me and to so many others yeah. from our background, and that's achieving better diversity, equality and inclusion in the law. And yes. I have no embarrassment in saying very proudly that I admire you hugely, Achirag, because you are doing really well. You've got a great name at the English Bar but you're one of only a few people like you who are in that role. And we, you and I would love to see more people like us doing as well as you and your head of chambers, Puna Milwani and other people who you and I know, but there's just yeah. too few of us around. I know things are changing because it's, it's in many ways a generational thing. You know, as people get a bit more senior like you and me, we see more people coming through the ranks, but what can we do more? Uh, to ensure that we make the legal profession a, a lot fairer and better and more in keeping with our society at large? Well, first of all, I think I should say that uh, almost everything that you've said about me applies equally to you. So, <laughs> you know, Gautam, you're a very senior partner at Reed Smith and so doing international arbitration and highly regarded in that. So, I think I've been getting too much of the acclaim uh, and I think a lot of it needs to go to you as well. I think that we need to do two things. First of all, we need to do outreach to people who would not think of law as uh, a career for them because that's for other people. Certainly, I, you know, when I went into the law and it may be the same was for you, uh, culturally it was very different from where I was coming from. 
you know, class-wise and, and of course, in racial terms as well. It, it is a lot more diverse now than it was uh, when you and I started. But doing outreach, I, I participate in something called Prime Commitment with a particular law firm that uh, puts on events to introduce 17 and 18-year-olds to the law, just to sort of, you know, talk to them, bring them into chambers, bring them into the law firm, you know, take them around the Royal Courts of Justice, because these are buildings and areas uh, most people have never seen. I mean, you know, unless you're a lawyer or know a lawyer, there's no reason why you would see the Temple or Lincoln's Inn or the Royal Courts. But they are actually quite inspirational places. And if you can just inspire one person to say, actually, you know, and and I think it's the job for people like you and me to say, look, I did it. You know, you can do it. So uh, I, I remember a, a, an extremely touching encounter on my Silks Day. So we were, I was just coming out of uh, Westminster Hall in Parliament after being um, granted Silk. And I had all the long, you know, my wig and everything, This the bell-bottom wig. And there was a group of uh, school children. Uh, and I think they, they were probably from Tower Hamlets or something, because I think a lot of them were of ethnic minorities. And they came up to me and they said, hey, judge, hey, judge. You know, and I, <laughs> you know, and, and I think more, I mean, it wasn't my outfit, which was outlandish. As, as Silk's, you know, formal outfit is with breeches and long wigs because there were lots mm. of people with yeah. that outfit on that day in that area. But I think just seeing somebody who looked like them was something they'd not seen. So I think that's one thing is we can be role models and show people that this is possible for them. Secondly, of course, within our own organizations, we can make sure that people have equality of opportunity. And I think we're slowly getting there. I mean, we are slowly getting there, but I think we can do more by encouraging people who otherwise would think that this is a different world populated by public school boys and girls. And and I certainly wasn't one of them. And so, you know, I, I think just telling people that, look, you don't need to be that. Well, you know, I, you know, I think that's so right. And, You've put it very eloquently. And I dare say, Yichirag, when you were growing up in Leicester, yeah. and when I was growing up in Northwest London, we had very similar backgrounds, I think, yeah. because um, I certainly had no idea what Lingard's in was or what the temple <laughs> was or anything else. And, you know, my perception of lawyers was purely from what I saw on TV, you know, Ron Pole at the Bailey and that sort of stuff and everything else. And it seemed a completely different galaxy to me, not even the same planet. Uh, So, no, no, I agree with you. And and I think, you know, it's just, you know, things are changing, which is great. And one thing I'll say, and you don't need to respond to this at all, Chirag, but I would love to see Mr. Justice Carrier uh, (laughs) before too long. Just going back to that very sweet comment when you were in your patent shoes and your buckles yes. and your long wig um, right. after taking silk. But I would love to see that. But what I always do, Chirag, when I finish these podcasts is end on a sort of lighthearted note about sort of non-law and sort of some more fun things. Sure. So, you know, when you're not doing the fabulous work you do, what sort of music do you enjoy? Any groups or singers or bands, any sort of type of music you particularly like? Well, I'm, I'm an 80s child. So I go back to uh, bands like Tears for Fears. ELO, I was a big ELO fan. But, you know, and in the heyday of the new romantics, 
I'm, I'm going to sound so corny now, but, you know, Duran Duran, ABC, uh, all good. of those, you know, <laughs> Human League, all of that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I did all, all of that. And then, then very slowly I got into classical music, which I listened to as well. But I'm still an 80s an 80s child, but, you know, for sort of classical, I'll listen to some Beethoven and things like that. I haven't quite gone into opera. I'm not that sophisticated. And actually, recently, I've been listening to a lot of Hindi music, so Bollywood music. (laughs) You know, and it's from someone, you know, growing up in England, you know, as a sort of, as an immigrant and, you know, trying to balance two different identities who, you know, in my teenage years would sort of actively reject Bollywood music. I can see myself going back and listening to things and, and absolutely loving it. So, so I have eclectic taste, but uh, uh, certainly in, in pop terms, you know, things like the Stranglers, for example. Mm. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, Golden Brown and all oh, that God. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. no, that, you know, I still remember the first time I heard Golden Brown and yeah. you hear the, those keyboards at the beginning the and it yeah. sounds like it, it sounds really weird. And then you realize that's actually a really, really, really seminal piece of music. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, so listen, I mean, all the stuff you've been talking about, I can remember distinctly all of these groups. <laughs> and in yeah. fact, I still think one of the best albums from that whole era was Human League's Dare album. Yes. I think yes. that is definitely one of the best albums. It still sounds great now. Yeah. And I think that was partly the Giorgio Moroder effect and everything else. But um, anyway, we can talk about music for hours and I can't take yeah. too much of your time. But one thing I want to ask you just as we finish is... Now, fingers crossed, we're over the worst of the pandemic and fingers crossed more travel is going to be possible and holidays can be you know, taken again. Is there a place, any particular place or places that you and your family particularly have enjoyed traveling to over the years and you'd love to go back to sometime soon? Yeah, yes. Uh, I mean, the one place I would love to go back is Bali. That My wife and I went there for our honeymoon. We promise to keep going back and, you know, something just crops up. But that is a truly magical place. It's it's like a sort of emerald teardrop in, in the ocean. And it's just, and the people are the most gentle and there's so many wonderful temples and uh, the scenery is superb and the art and the music and the Kechak music and all of that. That's, it, it really is somewhere completely different, a, a gentler pace of life but with extremely deep cultural and religious depth to it. So that's that's probably one place. One place I've not been to, Mm. which I'd like to go to, is Brazil. And I'd also actually very much like to go to Australia, but then that's going to be a sort of 24-hour trip. And it's always difficult when you've got young children. So, you know, mine aren't that young anymore, so we'll we'll have to see. But But then when they get older, as you probably know, they have their own itineraries and plans. and Absolutely. So that becomes much more difficult. I know exactly what you mean, Chirag. And, uh, you know, I'm sort of on the, my wife and I are on the verge of sort of becoming partial empty nesters. Yes. So, uh, so I know exactly what you mean. Uh, you know, the same logistics that used to affect us years ago don't really affect us that much anymore. But uh, yeah. still, it's, well, I do hope you can get to Brazil, Bali, and of course, Australia. But yes. Look, Chirag, thank you so much. It's been an absolute privilege and pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for being such an incredibly inspirational person, such, you know, a role model for so many. 
it really has been really, really fun to speak to you. So thank you very, very much. Thank you, Gautam. It's been an absolute honor. Uh, and again, as I say, that all of this applies to you equally. So I, I really don't deserve this much praise all on my own. <laughs> You're thank far you. too kind. But no, thank you very much. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the Reed Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on reedsmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at reedsmithllp on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.